health research shouldn't really just be a esoteric one-off thing that it can actually become part of our life Hello, everyone, and welcome to HIMSCast. My name is Mike Milliard, and I'm executive editor of Healthcare IT News. We'll be speaking today about clinical trials, how to ensure diversity of representation in those trials, and how digital tools can widen patient engagement to boost participation. My guest today is PJ Jane, who's the CEO of Vibrant Health and the principal investigator of the NIH All of Us Research Program Participant Technology Systems Center. Welcome, PJ. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So for those who may not know, please tell us a bit about all of us, uh, what it is and and what the program hopes to accomplish. As you mentioned, um, um, our role, Vibrant Health's role, is the technology center for the NIH All of Us Research Program. And this program has been Um, a long-term program in the making now in its seven years. It started originally in 2015 and as a presidential initiative. Mm -hmm. And it started out as precision medicine initiative. And the reason it was started is because NIH and the world of clinical research or health research or clinical trials, there was a very big gap in how the data was being collected, and what kind of participation the clinical trials have had from underrepresented um, and health disparities populations. Another thing that clinical trials had not done is utilized digital technologies effectively. So when President started, President of the United States started this initiative and put a lot of funding behind it through Congress, that funding was then handed over to National Institutes of Health, NIH, to start this program called the All of Us Research Program. And the thesis here is to build 1 million people cohort to start out with. And they had an initial time frame of 10 plus years. And once this million people cohort is built, for conducting clinical research. It could be clinical trials, it could be um, observational health research, that this will be a national resource. So it's being funded and it is being reviewed as a national treasure. And you know how significant that is. Mm -hmm. So this is 1 million people's data that is electronically consented. population across the United States. And the the role of technology center that Vibrant uh, leads is to um, electronically consent participants. We call them participants, not patients, not consumers, Mm -hmm. because they are participating through a very well-defined, informed consent process. And once they become participants, then they are contributing their genomics data, their assessments data, wearable data, electronic health record data, environmental data, all of that. So this program, the All of Us, is viewed as a logical next step from the original human genome project, HGP. And Dr. Francis Collins, 
who originally led the Human Genome Project, which gave us genomics technology, DNA sequencing technology. It's the evolution of that program to say, now let's understand human health holistically. All of the human body, not just biology. Genomics, as you know, genetics, mm -hmm. takes a biological sample of a human and tells us about ancestry and traits and about some medically actionable information. But it stops there. So the vision for the All of Us program was, how do we provide a more comprehensive method to collect this data at scale nationwide with the right level of representation that we will talk about shortly so that that data incorporates biology, which is genomics, environment, lifestyle, and behavior. So that was a very long explanation to really set the context of out how significant the program is. And in our country, it's the most ambitious program ever undertaken, and there is no parallel for this in the world either. So this is a United States uh, you know, leadership in um, helping, uh, hopefully in the future, create new therapies and new scientific discoveries because the United States invested um, in this platform and technologies and approaches. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember talking to Eric Dishman, uh, who was leading the project ah, yes. a couple of years yes. ago. And and he was, uh, you know, from the get go. Yeah. He was saying that this was going to be a million people. And, and, and the goal from, from the beginning was to, to recruit folks of all shapes and sizes and all walks of life, you know, from across the country. So where are we in building this cohort? Do we have the million people yet? Or are we still still working on that? No, COVID happened. Yeah. <laughs> so we have about 700,000 people now. About 700,000. I can check the number so I can get back to you with specific numbers if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have about uh, something in that magnitude. And those people have uh, provided um, all of their um, you know, necessary electronic consent um, and uh, genomics and you know, the other types of biological information. And the number keeps growing. We are headed towards a million, I think. Um, Hopefully, in the next couple of years, we should see that. And so, the FDA put out a draft guidance in April. You know, not just about all of us, but about all clinical trials. You know, to, designed to you know encourage more participants. You know, from underrepresented, you know, racial and ethnic groups in clinical trials, and that's been an issue for a while. Um, but all of us, you know, was was well before that. You know, focused on on you know ensuring diversity. How was it approached? Um, was it just the kind of hope that if you get a million people, just by definition, it's going to be, you know, a, a vast cross-section? Or was there a concerted effort put into to ensuring, you know, diversity amongst, amongst that cohort? Yeah. I am so glad you asked that question, Mike. Because for the most people, they believe that if I just oversample and recruit broadly, that diversity will show up. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. The design of the protocol has to be um, a really uh, well-thought-out effort to say, when you look at the um, diversity, when you look at what FDA is talking about, they're talking about a diversity plan, right? It's not just random recruitment. Mm -hmm. So then you have to say, what does diversity mean? 
is it only mean uh, race, ethnicity, and gender, which is what we typically think about. Sure. But diversity in this case means a lot more than that. So beyond race, ethnicity, gender, you had geographic diversity. You have socioeconomic diversity, people of all economic statuses. You have rural versus urban diversity. You have disease and condition diversity. Do I have enough diabetes patients? Do I have enough um, you know, uh, pregnant women? Do I have lactation? What kind of comorbidities people have? So it was a multifaceted definition of diversity. And uh, that's the starting point. But then you have to reflect that in your recruitment plan. Mm -hmm. So NIH did a wonderful job, all of us research program of spreading out recruitment throughout the country because they had to do that to meet the geographic aspects of diversity. And language is another very important factor. We have, of course, we are an English speaking country, but there is significant Spanish. There are significant third, fourth, and fifth languages in the country. Mm -hmm. So all of that uh, needed to be um, incorporated. So when you talk about um, how do we ensure diversity is recruited, it's done through a very careful plan where you clearly define um, the FDA guidance says, define your diversity plan. That includes what are your endpoints? What do you want to achieve with this diversity? Um, and then where will you recruit from? All the aspects I just talked about have to be part of the plan. And then you have to have a proper study design, right? So clinical trials focus more on, you know, therapeutic um, aspects. Clinical trial is more used in the context of pharmaceutical and other organizations, but there is longitudinal observational designs. There are interventional designs. Um, and so you have to define what does your study design look like and what do you want the outcome to be and point to be. So it could be an open-ended endpoint. That's okay. Mm -hmm. but you still need to define that. Another thing you have to define is what are your goals for recruitment? So are you going to do 50%, 20%, 80%? Diversity, what is that goal? For all of us, from the very beginning, we defined a goal of 80 plus percent. Underrepresented uh, populations um, in biomedical research, health research, that is quite significant, right? So what we're saying is that 80% of the population has traditionally, typically not participated in health research, clinical research, clinical trials. That was quite significant. And it's not just diversity at the time of recruitment because, you know, one data point in a long research doesn't really give scientists and researchers enough data, right? It's just right. one point. Just sure. because I'm sick today, what if a month later I got better? So how much of my data that's only one time, 
one moment in time is useful. So you have to collect longitudinal data. And when you collect longitudinal data, which is over time, then you have to continuously look for scientific validity of that data over time. And you say five years from now, will, I, will my data still represent 80% diversity with people dropping out? So what if initially 80% of the people were diverse and underrepresented, but there was not enough follow-up? and longitudinal data collection from that population. So five years later, we realized, uh-oh, we ended up from 80 to 40% because so many people dropped out. Okay. You can't have that. So then what's your follow-up plan? How are you going to achieve and continue to achieve diversity at your given target over time? I see. So how do you continue effective data collection? How do you continue engagement with those populations that traditionally have not even participated in research? So what barriers, right? You have to understand the barriers, the inhibitors. Then how do you invest in building those community relationships with those participants to make sure they are going to stick around? So that's when people talk a lot about engagement. You hear the word engagement. I'm sure you are <laughs> flooded by that word engagement. A couple of times, yeah. But that's what the word engagement means. Right. And then retention. We also use the word retention. Mm -hmm. Is Are these participants being retained? So we have learned in the last six years some characteristics that better define what a what type of participant is more likely to stay retained over time? And how do you talk? How do you communicate? How do you build relationships with participants who are of different demographic or different statuses, different diversities, that there is a playbook mm -hmm. to keep them engaged and retained? So that's another very important factor is... Um, how, do, how are you going to keep them retained over time? So how does technology help here? And uh, here's where you can maybe talk a bit about Vibrance and, and, and how you guys specifically are, are aiding in, in, the, in the process here. Yeah. Technology, we believe, is a very central. All right. So let's start with why diversity in health research, clinical research, clinical trials has been low. Mm -hmm. As you may know, 90 plus percent of the clinical trials have been done by um, academic medical centers or health systems that are in more, um, you know, urban areas. Sure. So there was a very interesting uh, research done by, I believe, Gartner or somebody that said that as soon as you go outside of a 50 mile radius, the participation in clinical research drops by 90 percent. Wow. And there is a reason for it, right? Because most of those are based on in-clinic, in-person-based clinical trial approaches. So if your barrier is, or my barrier is that I live in rural areas, or I live in suburban areas, and I'm more than 40 to 50 miles 
even though I may have the means, you know, a car or the time, it still is a barrier, right? Driving, parking, um, and then the cost and the fuel and my personal time off that I have to take. So because the protocol requires certain number of clinic visits, certain number of interactions, data collection, biospecimen collection, et cetera. So because of that, call it paper pencil based or call it you know, in person, that has been the biggest barrier. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you say that, look, we really want to be able to be outside and we should not have to rely on people coming in. That right there says, okay, how am I going to reach those people? Then there is only one uh, way to do it mm-hmm. through technology, through digital technology. Mm-hmm. So there was already transformation was already underway for the last five to 10 years. But COVID, as you know, has accelerated all of that, yeah. where people are communicating remotely. And they, are, they have now learned a new behavior that we can actually communicate remotely. So for us, what we've seen is a huge bump in remote and virtual health research. And we just put everything under this umbrella of health research, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. That could be clinical trial, public health research, population health research, all is encompassed under the umbrella of health research. So we've seen just a lot of interest from researchers and scientists to say that I think digital technologies is the only way to reach those populations because we're not relying on people coming in. And now that spans a big realm, right? Going from um, marketing, Mm -hmm. how do you build awareness? How do you reach people? How do you create outreach? You have to communicate. How do you communicate? So you have to have digital presence. You will have social media presence. You have to show people where to go to learn more. So that means some sort of a marketing campaign, a website, expression of interest. Hey, I'm interested. Okay, what happens then? You have to go create an electronic registry. From there, the process begins. Now, you have to provide broad set of apps to participants. Somebody only wants to use a laptop. So we provide browser-based app. Somebody wants to just use a tablet. Well, we provide tablet-based app. Somebody wants to use mobile phone and iPhone and Android. So, so many versions of phones and form factors. So, we provide those. Then, within that, people need to be able to do biospecimen collection. How would you do that remotely? Kits. COVID taught us test kits saliva kits, and other types of kits. So we integrated a whole bunch of different kits for specific biosample collection. So we can initiate that order directly from, if Mike, you were a participant, you'll be using an app. And from there, you will initiate a direct order. A kit comes to you, 
you enter your, you donate your bias specimen, the kit goes back, process is complete, right? Then electronic health record. We are able to provide electronic interoperability-based exchanges of electronic health record data. And that electronic health record data, because of standards and interoperability, has become a lot easier mm -hmm. to gain access to. Then we talk about wearable data. It can provide invaluable information to pretty much any health research, but in particular, you know, hypertension, heart disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. So neuroscience, you know, neurology-based uh, researchers are very interested in data that can come from wearable devices right? Heart health researchers are very interested in that. Mm -hmm. That is enabled through mobile phones and wearable device integration. Everything is happening remotely, virtually, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, this, uh, I think the world has learned that, 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 and I think that's where you were talking about technology and how digital technology can help. It's actually center stage now. It's like literally not possible to do health research anymore without these types of digital and uh, technology enabled remote and virtual approaches. And that is what Vibrant we provide to NIH and to many other um, researchers and collaborators across the country and across the world. So in some small way, even though the pandemic, you know, slowed down your recruitment, perhaps, uh, it, it may have improved your retention because folks are now just used to the technology and, the, and they're much more comfortable with it and conversant with it. And that will bear you know, fruit as, as, as we look to the years ahead. I think, yes, it does. And I think more importantly, it's a monumental shift. It's a titanic shift that's happening, mm -hmm. which is let's get people used to, let's get people comfortable that health research shouldn't really just be a, esoteric one-off thing, that it can actually become part of our life. Why not? Because research needs data. Yeah. And my health, your health, everybody's health changes every day, every other day. So why can't our own lives become our own living labs of my own data, right? It's one thing to donate the data to a researcher. But over time, Mike, here is where the shift is occurring. As people are collecting their own data and they have these digital tools from Vibrant, over time, it's becoming a repository for them to go back and reference. Oh, wait, this is what I was a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And now suddenly I have curiosity to say, okay, let me keep going and see what does my next two, five, 10 years might look like because I'm going to have longitudinal data in one place for me as a consumer to benefit from, in addition to researchers and scientists. So, yeah, closing question, you know, speaking of looking years ahead, you know, uh, what, what are you expecting as, as the future of, of all of us? Um, hoping to hit that million mark soon. Um, and then from there, you know, when you look in the, in the next couple of years, what are you hoping to accomplish? 
I think from my perspective, and I am not in any way representing or claiming what all of us will do, mm -hmm. but it's my understanding and expectation that this is a national treasure. And it requires continued investment. So I think a couple of things I can personally project is continue to grow the cohort. Why, why stop at a million? Two million, five million, 10 million. Because you need that data, right? We talk a lot about AI ML. Mm -hmm. The fundamental need for AI ML is data. Right. If you don't have enough data, AI ML cannot help us. So I believe that continued expansion of number of participants, two, five, 10, whatever, then continued expansion of data types and data, because that's going to be needed to really start deriving insights and scientific discoveries. And then continued focus on, as you probably already know, that most of the drugs, most of the therapies are based on a Caucasian white population. Yeah. They have never tested many of those. Do they work on brown folks or black folks or other types of ethnicities? So to me, continued focus to say we have this treasure trove of data, now it can truly help us perhaps to understand um, how these may be different for different biologic you know, variations and DNA-based variations. And the other thing I imagine is that there will be a lot of focus to say, okay, now we have this large cohort, we have the data. How can we make that available to what's called as sub-studies or ancillary studies? So, you know, how can we utilize this data set, not just to conduct one big Uber study, mm -hmm. but we have enough granularity now to segment the population to what the world calls a sub-study, right? That, I believe, will start to happen. They have already started one sign of that. It's called um, an ancillary study around nutrition. Yeah. So that was funded. That was announced about six months ago. And that in itself is pretty groundbreaking, that you can add a new study to an existing study of this scale and magnitude. We wrote about it at Healthcare IT News. Yes. You did. So, Wonderful. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. A lot of great uh, stuff here, and, and it's really exciting stuff. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be keeping an eye on the program and, and what you're doing at Vibrance. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, PJ. Mike, I really enjoyed, and these are very insightful um, questions from you. and. Uh, um, him certainly has a very broad uh, reach. So I'm hoping that some of this focus on diversity, underrepresentation, and how do we help achieve health equity, mm -hmm. reduce health disparities, and bring more focus and light on addressing disparities that you've taken the time to conduct a podcast around this. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your insights. It's great to talk to you. Likewise. Take care. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Hymns Cast. We encourage you to rate and review us. And if you like what you hear, 
please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Thanks again, PJ. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Mike. Have a good okay. day.